On today's episode, Dave interviews Alan Meyerson. Alan's an Emmy-nominated director who in 1963 founded San Francisco's political sketch comedy, The Committee. Alan directed the movie Steelyard Blues, starring Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland, and on television, Friends, Ellen, Laverne and Shirley, The Larry Sanders Show, News Radio, Miami Vice, and many more. I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. You've seen improv go a lot of different directions, haven't you? Well, I've seen improvisation uh, be overcome by what's called improv, which are entirely different uh, endeavors. Mm -hmm. uh, improvisation, I think of as an art. Uh, improv, I think of as a uh, stand-up act in front of a lot of people, usually talking to somebody else. Right, right, talking at somebody else. Right. Uh, improvisation is uh, an expression of the present. You're, um, you're, you have to be absolutely in the moment as in improvisation in order for it to be improvised. Really depends, at least in, in improvisational theatrical ex experiences, really depends on um, the consistent and present time collaboration between improvisers, uh, in the, very much in the same way that jazz musicians, when they improvise, have to be totally there, right. uh, listening, uh, connecting, connected. And that's uh, none of those things are necessarily true in improv. Did you see a lot of jazz in San Francisco when you were out there? Uh, I saw a lot of jazz all my whole life. Uh -huh. In those days, the Musicians Union in the United States was segregated. And um, so there were black locals and white locals. And the uh, movement to amalg what they called amalgamate, collaboration between the uh, black musicians who for the, were shut out of studio work, which is where you could make a living, right. uh, and some of the left-wing... Uh, uh, white musicians and left-wing trade unionists generally right. uh, to uh, support this amalgamation uh, movement. In fact, uh, uh, they also had uh, uh, a symphony orchestra that Verick Klipper uh, 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 conducted. Which symphony? It was, it was, it was, it was uh, I don't know, the South Central L.A. Symphony. Oh, okay, I, the symphony here. The here, Los yeah. I see. Uh, <coughs> in order to teach black musicians the uh, the literature and um, in fact Ornette Coleman was in that was in the in the orchestra uh -huh. and one of the things that they used to do um, as I'm sorry raising, Ornette Coleman was in a symphony orchestra yeah that I did not know that was that where how he got his beginnings or he just happened he to... was a young guy and he was uh, he was a jazz musician also you know right. he was he was actually uh, tutored by uh, uh, both Charlie Parker I mean uh, uh, Char Charlie Mingus and uh, um, Buddy Collette, uh -huh. uh, who were uh, both all came from the same school, uh, high school, as I remember. In L.A. In L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I'm sorry, Ming I'm, I, I love jazz. So Mingus, Mingus is an L.A. guy. Absolutely. Uh huh. Yeah, he grew up here. In fact, if you go down to the Watts Towers, there's a Charlie Mingus uh, building there, dedicated to him. Uh, at any rate, the uh, uh, one of the fundraising devices that they had for this amalgamation movement was they would have jam sessions down in the uh, clubs on uh, Central Avenue, which right. was at the time the main drag of, of the ghetto. Yeah, but it was also where all the where all the music happened. That's right. Right. Yeah, there was the, also the Dunbar Hotel, right, uh, where Duke Ellington used to stay. So anyway, on Sunday afternoons, they would have these uh, what they call jam sessions, but were actually sort of mixed sets. So uh, you'd go down and you'd hear uh, 
Jerry Mulligan, mm -hmm. and then you'd hear the Trenier Twins, and then you'd hear Louis Jordan, and then you'd hear Lester Young. You know, it was just a, a mixed bag, but it was great. And my dad, who was a uh, uh, left-wing guy, used to take me down there. For, for him, it had nothing to do with the music. It had to do with supporting the political position. Got it. But I fell in love with the music of when course. I was a kid, and so I've been listening to music all my life and uh, jazz. I produce concerts. Uh, you know, I was. I, I I can't make any music. I'm, I'm a. Uh, I have have no ear for that, but I can produce records. I have produced records and produced concerts. Mm -hmm. um, what? So you were, was your dad a union member? Was he a union member? Yeah. Yeah, he was. You know, another unknown part of uh, L.A. labor history is that in uh, the middle '40s, uh, the IA, uh, the IA. Uh, uh, TSE, yeah, Yahtzee, uh, uh, was uh, an incredibly crooked union. Uh, made the uh, Teamsters look like they were all uh, 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 altar boys. And uh, in fact, the, the guy who ran the IA was a guy named Honest. This is this was his name, Willie Byoff. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> it was a very corrupt and very company, much a company union. And after the uh, Second World War, a lot of people came out from the East Coast to the West Coast, uh, you know, uh, guys who'd been in the Army, their families, and so on. And many of these uh, coming from the East Coast trade union uh, uh, backgrounds uh, were, had, were very impatient with the IA because the, the, they kept selling them out. Mm -hmm. so, so the IA, the IA, because it was now it's called IATSE, IATSE, right? Yeah. Uh, so they they merged with some. No. There, well, you, it was you always called the, the IA, IA but yeah, you, you but called was, them the IA. That, yeah, that was yeah. just okay. so you could save a few breaths of silver. Yeah, and it's important to save those breaths. You might need them later. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, so they had uh, th these uh, folks that had come out from the East Coast formed another uh, union called the Congress, uh, uh, I think it was the Congress of Studio Unions, the CSU. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they uh, had a jurisdictional dispute. Uh, the uh, cops, uh, the uh, L.A. Times, the powers of Los Angeles collaborated with the I.A. to crush that union. In fact, smashed a bunch of heads. Some people were killed. Uh, they had mass trials. There's a picture from Life magazine that I have of my dad among a group of uh, a thousand people in a mass trial. Uh, mass trial? Mass trial, yes. thousand people on trial at the same moment. In L.A.? In L.A. What year? 1947, I think. Mass trial yes. in the United States. Oh, yeah. A thousand people at one time. Yes. Yeah, Life magazine. As uh, Yogi Berra said, you can look it up. <laughs> uh, in fact, I suggest you do. Uh, I, I did not know that. And that the, seems so... It it, seems it's so... a part of Hollywood history that uh, is pretty much lost, but it's, it was an important mm -hmm. chapter. And it did, in fact, move the uh, IATSC into a more uh, uh, legitimate position. as, as They're a, very strong now. Yes, it they seems are. like they, uh, all the unions, they're Well, the they that... had a guy who just stepped out about a year and a half ago who was, in my mind, to my mind, a, a bum. He really was, uh, uh, who ran the whole thing. But he's he's gone, and now it's, the newer people seem like they're on it. A lot of, they're, they're trying to get, well, they're, they're really trying to recruit more people I'm a union guy. My family used union. My, you know, your growing up with jazz was my growing up with uh, folk music because uh -huh, my folks were uh, they they were at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago uh -huh. when it was on uh, Sedgwick 
and North. Uh -huh. So they were right there at the beginning of it. And their inspiration was it was still political. Um, but I, I look at all those, I look at all those things and I feel like unions now are, are dying. But back then, I mean, it really upholds the middle class. And, Absolutely. And yeah. when I hear people bitch about it, I'm thinking, what are you talking about? This has made your life better, even though you're not a union person. Right. And you should be. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but, you know, the, the, uh, the fascinating thing is for me is that the primary force in trade union uh, activity now are immigrants. Right. Uh, and they always have been. Uh, yes. Well, at a certain point uh, during the uh, 40s and 50s, um, and even in the 30s, uh, they were often first-generation people mm -hmm. uh, uh, rather than, than uh, immigration people. But your dad, so you were born in Scotland, right? No, 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 that's... That's a different one? Never look at IMDb never. or, or, or Wikipedia. So your family was, you were raised where? I, I was born in Cleveland, raised in... in uh, Wait, somebody get that wrong. Yeah. Uh -huh. In D.C. Uh, so, until I was nine, then we moved out here to L.A. So what did your dad do? So what was he? Well, he was an architect. Uh -huh. And when he came out, to, well, he was actually an architectural designer, which is an architect who works for another architect. Right. Uh, and... Uh, when he moved out here, or when we moved out here, uh, he became a set designer in the studios because his skills lit that, and that was uh, paid much more than architecture did, which is a completely unorganized uh, uh, field. And that was his first introduction to being a union member. That was my first. His first. That was his first thing. That's how he became a union member. No, no, no. He was always a, a trade union guy. Uh, so when you're an architect, you can be a trade. You can be a union guy. Well, yes, there was a. a uh, uh, an architectural union in the East Coast. I don't think it was out here. Uh, and so he was a member of that. And I think also probably was a, uh, an ad hoc or organizer for mm -hmm. him as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he grew up, uh, that, was, that was his life. You know. And you were in San Francisco during, like, talk about the rabble The best rousing. time in the world. Is, now, while you're in the middle of all that maelstrom, and I look at all the people that came up from the committee, you starting the committee, uh, you and your, your wife starting the committee and coming up at that time and being surrounded by all of these people that were just so ripe to, to, to express their creative outlook and to, to find their voice. What a time. Oh, it was great. It's like I imagine perhaps uh, Paris was like in the, in the 20s, you know, in the 1920s. Uh, it was incredible, and um, there was such a cross-pollinization of, of everything. You know, mm -hmm. uh, well, we uh, financed the Quicksilver Messenger service. Right. Uh, I introduced Bill Graham to uh, rock and roll. Mm -hmm. um, when uh, Ronnie Davis, who ran the San Francisco Mine Troupe, uh, uh, lent us uh, their a rehearsal space so we could build our first show before the committee actually opened in San Francisco. So there's, there's, that, there's that collaboration that was going on where nobody felt that somebody else was taking the spotlight. No, no. Was, in fact, there, there was a, in the uh, uh, middle six, I guess around 67 or so, <coughs> 66 or 67, there was uh, an organization uh, that I was uh, the chairman of, but it was a, a citywide organization called the Artist Liberation Front. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was uh, hundreds of artists in San Francisco of all generations uh, and genres. Uh, we, uh, we would do things like we would have a day where it was 
the art day. And at 11 o'clock in, uh, in the morning, everybody, wherever you were, would do your art. You know, if you were a poet and you were on a, on a bus, you would stand up and make and, and recite a poem. If you were a painter, you would draw something. Uh, we had uh, huge community-wide activities. We had, uh, I think, at uh, the church on Dolores Street in, in the Mission, we had uh, butcher paper strung probably about uh, three or four hundred feet of it around the uh, uh, church uh, uh, wall, and we uh, with with crayons and paints for people to just come and make this huge, you know, uh, mural on on paper. It was. Um, and, and yes, and and the, the world of jazz was also involved in that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the writers, uh, Herb Gold. Right. Uh, uh, it was, it was, he was a journalist, right? Pardon Herb me? Gold was a journalist. No, Herb Gold. Well, he has written journalism. He's right. a novelist primarily. Got it. Got it. And uh, uh, but but lots of people. You mm -hmm. know, uh, the, the ACT had uh, uh, American the Conservatory Theater. Right. Uh, had a. Uh, Legal relationship with the committee, as did the Mind True, right. uh, as did the uh, Magic Theater in Brooklyn. You know, uh, it was it was uh, a very uh, as, as Harold Clerman titled his book about the group theater in uh, in the '30s in New York. It, it was the fervent years. Right, right, and for you to be around all these people that were engaging in the fervent the fervency, if you will, of all that and and. The idea of collaboration and inspiring people to inspire people to inspire people, and the community that comes from all of that, and it's a it's it's a it's an um, it's a self perpetuating machine, mm -hmm. you know. And and when I look at all the people that came out of there and spread, it's just it it, it is an amazing time that changed culture mm -hmm. in the United States. Yeah, it did. Uh, unfortunately, countervailing forces, <laughs> as they always do. Do you think the countervailing forces had something to do with, um, with with business? Money. Yes. Money. Sometimes Absolutely. it was heroin money. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was just corporate money. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was the fear of uh, of what was going on in media. Uh, you know, <clears throat> if you couldn't make a buck off of it, like the uh, record companies could, it was scary. If you were uh, a newspaper publisher, right, right. But at the same time, one of the things that was scary about them was the burgeoning of what was called the underground press, like the Berkeley Barb and what used to be the L.A. Weekly. They still call it the L.A. Weekly, but it's a different. Yeah, Chicago had the Reader. Yeah, yeah, uh, and again, that's the counterculture. But eventually, that got soaked up by corporations. Mm -hmm. Did you ever feel when you're when when you because you've done so much directing, um, did you ever feel like I don't I think a lot of people when when you're a young artist you go I'm not going to do that because that's working for the man and was there a time where you went I am go I'm drawn to that and I'm giving not giving up but I'm evolving out of the that counterculture. Well, no, I think that the counterculture itself evolved and. On some level, I guess I, I'm not sure that evolution is the right term. I'm just looking but, for a word. But, That's uh, not abandoning. Uh, for me, what happened was uh, I was, uh, you know, as I say, I was directing the committee mm -hmm. and producing it. We had companies, several companies. Were you also performing too? Pardon me? You were also performing as well. No, no. I, you weren't. The only time I performed was when everybody was so loaded and I was the only person who could <laughs> do it. But no, I, I've never had any... any uh, uh, 
desire to be, desire to be on, on stage or on film. At any rate, I, uh, uh, at one point around uh, 1969, <coughs> I guess, 68, 69, things were still uh, going very strongly at that point in terms of the counterculture. But it, you could see it fraying at the edges. Uh, I got a call. How is, how is it see? How did you see it fraying at the edges? What does that mean? Well, you could see uh, uh, smack. You see heroin and uh -huh. cocaine oh, coming it. in, got it. and beginning to replace psychedelics and, and weed. Uh, you could see uh, uh, some people starting to move away. You could see the some of the bands which had come out of that culture, who had become now multi, multi, multi billionaires because of their uh, success. Uh, letting Jefferson uh, Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, I don't want to name names because some of okay. my friends. Would, but but no no, I'm not yeah. saying that they're wrong. I'm just I'm not saying that at right. all. What I'm saying because I'm not saying that they gave. But it's also it's like this is known though too. Yeah yeah. Um and and the dead and you know right. all the uh, the great. Well, the dead sort of held on. I must say that they they, so they, they were pretty faithful to the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. uh, at any rate, uh, I got a call from uh, Jane Fonda <coughs> and Donald Sutherland, mm -hmm. who were uh, fixing to go out on the road. At that time, it was during the Vietnam, the height of the Vietnam War, and uh, there was a uh, network of what were called underground coffee houses, which weren't actually underground. They were simply coffee houses, like beatnik or hips, uh, hippie co coffee houses, which were established near military bases in this country. And they were set up to uh, service uh, uh, military people who wanted to get out of the PX world and into a more uh, supportive civilian kind of feeling while they were still in the service. So they could come there, they could play chess, they could read newspapers, they could hang out, uh, get a cup of coffee. And uh, Jane and Donald uh, and Peter Boyle, who was an old friend from Second City, uh, had uh, they, they wanted to uh, go out and uh, do uh, sort of anti-war agitprop cabaret material for them. Well, I was the ranking guy in the country at that point in terms of agitprop. The committee was a very political uh, organization in terms of what we presented and also in terms of what we did. We had we sat in. We did stuff. We supported the uh, Vietnam uh, Day Committee. We used the free speech um, movement, all that stuff. We in were, Ber which is happening in Berkeley at the time. Yes. Yes. But, but we were intimately involved in helping to organize and developing some of that stuff. Uh, at any rate, uh, uh, and I also had all this material from the committee, which is really what they were after. Mm -hmm. So uh, I went out uh, to, and I directed and built a company using some people from the committee, and Jane, Donald, and Peter, mm -hmm. uh, and we toured various uh, uh, of these uh, underground coffee houses. And one night, after we'd been out on the road for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, I guess, uh, Donald said that he and Jane were fixing to make a movie. He was going to be the executive producer and asked if I would be interested in directing it. And uh, out of sheer ignorance uh, and hubris, I said, sure, why not? Because I knew I was good with actors. I, mm -hmm. you know, I had directed in New York. I had the committee. I directed plays. And uh, I figured somebody else took the pictures. What was there to know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I had a rude awakening. Uh -huh. uh, so, uh, But it got good. The movie got good. Uh, it, the movie was, was in an odd kind of way of huge success. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I saw it probably 30 theaters around the country. Mm -hmm. It never failed to get a standing ovation. Mm -hmm. which and the name thing, of the movie was? It was called Steel Yard Blues. Yes. 
very clumsy. Not a movie I'm terribly proud of because I knew nothing about filmmaking at that point. I'd never, I'd been on a movie set once before. What was that? Uh, that was uh, Billy Jack. Uh huh. And oh, because those guys saw the committee and they wanted to use they some used of you. Some of the committee and some of our material. Right. Uh, at any rate, I uh, 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 so I directed Steelyard Blues, and I just, although it was an exercise in arrogance and terror, <coughs> arrogance on my part thinking I could do it, and terror on my part realizing that I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> uh, I. Uh, 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 I just loved it, yeah. And I realized that this is really what I had I wanted to do all my life. I did, hadn't known it before I got here. Uh, one of the uh, just on a political le uh, level, one of the reasons that we uh, made the movie for Warner Brothers is we got Warner Brothers. So there were Warner Brothers and Universal were both uh, bidding to do this movie because Jane and Donald were huge stars at that point, mm -hmm. and uh, they did Clute. Was they had done Clute. Yes. Yeah, they did. They had done Clute, right? And uh, uh, Warner Brothers uh, gave us a hundred thousand dollars in the budget for the peace movement to be funneled through the National Council of Churches, and that's why we did it with Warner Brothers rather than Universal, which I think was only willing to come up with seventy-five thousand. Wow! Uh, wow! Wow! So would, they, did, would that happen today? No, not a chance. First of all, nobody. I mean, even people like. Say Mark Ruffalo, who I think is a great actor and a very principled man, he doesn't have that the kind of, of muscle, that, or even uh, that could get a uh, a studio to do something like that. Right. This, this was not public. I mean, this was like just Got buried it. in our our uh, our budget, but it was part of the budget. Yeah, I just saw Foxcatcher last night, and boy, is he phenomenal. he's terrific. Boy, he, what a wonderful actor he is. And a and a and a. a Oh, that lefty heart that I like so much. Um, He's the guy who went down to Occupy. He was the first uh, celebrity right. who went, went down to Occupy. He's a, a major figure in the uh, water rights and, and environmental anti-fracking. Yeah, fracking, right, right. Uh, he's a good guy. I think that when it comes to politics, I think that my politics, my politics, my politics so much drives my art in so many ways because I think that my politics, I have, a, I have a bleeding heart, I'm a bleeding heart liberal, and I think because of that, I see, I, I improvise a lot, I teach a lot of improv, I, I, I impart like empathy and being in that moment, and I think that the actors that I look at that have that empathy and, and are lefties, I kind of lean towards them and say, you, in, you inspire me on a very different level. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I share that, but uh, honestly for me, uh, if people do good work, their politics are almost irrelevant. Mm -hmm. uh, when I became active in the Directors Guild, <clears throat> um, it was a sort of a rude awakening to me to encounter people whose uh, work I admired who were jerks, right. and people whose uh, work I didn't necessarily admire who were wonderful people. Uh, you know, the uh, quality of the uh, person or their politics and the quality of their uh, work and art don't necessarily always match. No, I, I, and sometimes they do match. Sometimes they do and then it's glorious. Yeah. Or it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at, I look at the movie American Sniper and I look at that, uh, the guy that was in it and I, did you see it? I haven't seen it. I've heard about it and I've heard about him. Yeah. And I'm uh, absolutely astonished and aghast 
<clears throat> that it's the uh, highest grossing picture in the country. I know. I know. I know. There seems to be a tremendous disconnect from what he actually did and uh, the amount of people that are coming to see that movie. Well, I'm for me, the idea that, that having now spent, uh, what, uh, 12 years in this so-called war on terror, uh, having lost thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of other of people from other countries, being in a state of perpetual war, being in a state of perpetual fear that the movie-going public is going to go to want to go see a war movie rather than any of the other lovely movies that are out there, that's shameful to me. I mean, and, and a real commentary on the state of our culture. Right. I agree. I agree. Um, because it, it it's so... We live in such a bellicose society. Our culture is just so, like... Uh, Liam Neeson recently came out uh, saying that he thinks there's too many guns in movies. <laughs> well, which is just ironic to me because all the movies that he's done since Schindler's all, List has been gun movies. Yeah, absolutely. And he's a good actor. Yeah. But uh, that's where he's, particularly since his wife died, uh, that's what he's been doing. Right. That is exactly what he's been doing since his wife died. Right. And I also have a feeling that has something to do with it. Well, I'm sure that it was an incredible blow to his system. Yes. Uh, what an amazing actress. Oh, she was wonderful. But, yeah. uh, you know, I think he uh, also has a family to raise. You know, I think there are, who, one no, never knows what's behind, what, what someone else's motives tru truly are. Right. Uh, so I would uh, hesitate to uh, lay no. anything at his, at his uh, doorstep. But I do think that... that uh, He's a gifted actor, and I, I sympathize with his desire to be doing something other than shoot 'em ups. Oh, you know what? That's really true. And I bet he had that feeling that he was symbolically shooting himself in the foot uh, or you know, taking his gravy train away, because I believe that what happened right after that was the one gun manufacturer that was supplying weapons for his movie said, we're not going to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. We're done. That just came out last week. And I, I, don't, I don't understand how people, people vote with their money, you know, they also vote with their, with their voting. Mm -hmm. And I look at that and I go, why are you doing that? Why are you going against our best, your best interest? I don't understand that. I never have, but uh, culturally we seem to do that uh, almost uh, unfailingly. Unfailingly. Absolutely unfailingly. And I mean, that George Bush would get, well, the first election got stolen, but that he would get re-elected, stunning to me. Stunning. Yes. Well, you get all those, it's also these, uh, this governor in Kansas. Oh, Brownback. Brownback, yeah. who essentially gutted their state budget right. by, you know, removing all the taxes, and now they're, you know, a $300 million budget shortfall. And he's, he's going again. Yes, he's, in, he's going, yep, that's happened, so what we're going to do is cut education again and all that. And I go, what are you people doing? And I think that, for me, I, I feel like I'm the old man shouting outside, like, you kids get off my lawn. But I also feel like, what are you doing? What are people doing? Well, unfortunately, it's not the kids, because uh, the kids feel so disenfranchised that they're not active in any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Unless, again, they're immigrants, like the Dreamers and people like that. Right. But uh, for the most, or, you know, some of the college students, when the tuitions get raised, they, they get bit themselves. They'll, they'll uh, take a stand. But in terms of any kind of collective action for the collective good, it's pretty much... Uh, 
not happening. But you've also seen this too, you know, coming out of the free speech movement and all that, saying this is going to change. You know, uh, uh, Vietnam and, and and the youth movement saying while you're at that, when you're in the middle of it, going, we are going to change. There's going to be a revolution, and looking at it, going, well, that didn't totally happen. No, it didn't. It got uh, it got sold out and got bought out. Right, it got bought out. It so, sold out. And sold out. How did it get sold out? How did you see that? Well, uh, you know, for every buyer, there has to be a seller. <laughs> <laughs> right. right, right. So you're saying, are you saying the advertisers uh, co-opted it, and you know? I, I think that that um, you know, the old adage of uh, power corrupting is uh, is an, a, uh, an absolute power corrupting absolutely. absolutely is uh, an accurate and appropriate one, and so. When um, you know, if you're a kid who uh, is uh, scrabbling around and you uh, uh, sign a record contract and you wind up with three million dollars in your pocket overnight, it tends to uh, change your uh, worldview. Yes, uh, unless you're really solidly planted in in a uh, more um, substantial and cooperative and compassionate culture, which growing up in the United States makes it's a little difficult. It does seem to be really difficult. It, I really wonder where's the compassion. I, I question it every day. Uh, I, I look at what people are doing. I look, at, I, I look at so much going, how come we're not acting on that? How come we're destroying our, our, our environment? How come we're letting that happen? And is it that we're distracted by, by electronics? Is it that we're distracted by shiny objects? What the hell's going on where we don't put one and one together and come up with two? And it, I, I want to, I scream. I don't want to scream. I scream and I look at my students and I say, what are you doing? Are you aware of what's going on in this world? I, uh, I made a YouTube video, which I'll send you if you'd like. Right. Uh, <laughs> called Why I Fired the Bank of America. And... Um, uh, people, uh, you know, it was just me. It was, I had a couple of friends who uh, used iPhones to photograph it mm -hmm. or to video, uh, videograph it. Um, but uh, I think it's necessary for people to take take matters into their own hands rather than to wait for an election or wait for. At, at any rate, David, I'm. Uh, you wanted to talk about comedy, and I'm not sure this is no, that but, funny. but in, in this podcast, in this podcast, this is what we do. Okay, we we go Great. in that I'm, direction. I'm all for it. But, yeah, because for me, I, I you know we can talk about because you you have such a storied career. I had uh, I had Carl Gottlieb on, and we just went off in these different directions. And I'm just I'm enam I'm enamored by storytellers. I'm enamored by people and and hearing people's points of view and. The people that listen to this podcast uh, are, you know, they're varied. There's 100,000 people listen to this podcast. And the people that listen to this podcast, I think, are looking for that inspiration. They're looking for to say, what is my voice? What do I have to say? What's my worth through my history, through my story? And point of view is so important. And when you say, you know, people have to stand up for themselves and don't wait for an election, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like at this moment, are you mad? Are you inspired? Are you joyful? Or are you watching the television and letting the world, which is fine too. Or are you depressed and cynical uh, and have given up because you feel that there's no possible point in it, which I think is a huge factor in all that. I agree. I, I totally agree. And I think that, that this last election was evidence of that. I think that so many people stayed home 
and just went, what's the point? And when we go, what, when somebody, somebody is like uh, the World War II posters, you know, when you speak, Hitler cheers or whatever mm. it was. Like when you are in, in action, when you are in, in, in action, which means no action, when you are in inaction, um, every, somebody else is going to take the action. Not only action, but it's movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's collective action over a sustained period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, there were millions of people who marched against the uh, uh, war in Iraq. <coughs> uh, they were ignored by the powers that be. They were also I, ignored by the, uh, the powers that be was also the media. Yeah, well, that's part of the, they're, yes. they're part of the powers that be. Yes. Uh, but, and, and then the, they walked away. They gave up, you know, uh, they being, uh, my fellow marchers, mm -hmm. uh, we we watched the uh, financial system crumble in this country. We called it a recession rather than a depression. We had the Great Depression. I guess this was the not so Great Depression. <laughs> uh, I don't know what, what kind of depression is is great, but uh, so we called it a recession, and everybody bought into that. Right. Now, um, uh, unemployment is diminishing, and jobs are increasing, but the uh, uh, the uh, uh, compensation for those jobs is the, we're at 1970 level. Yep. Uh, Again, going back to the unions, I that's feel right. like because of the dissemination, because of the dilution of the unions, the middle class is is gone. Is gone. That's right. Uh, what, what we used to call the middle class uh, is now considered the working class. You know, uh, and uh, you know, yesterday, uh, Oxfam, the English uh, 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 charity, yes. uh, issued a, a report saying that by next year, by 2016, the top 1% of uh, 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 owners of income in this world on the planet will own more than half of, of the, uh, the wealth of the planet. The top 1% will own more than the rest of the 99% on the planet. We're not talking about the developed countries, we're talking about the world. That's pretty cockeyed. <laughs> it's pretty cockeyed, and you also go, what are you going to do about it? And what are you going to do, what are you going to do about it? And that's where people go, what are you going to do about it? I'm throwing up my hands. I, I was in, uh, in uh, uh, Barcelona last month, mm -hmm. and uh, I was uh, staying in a hotel that was on the uh, on, on one of the main streets, mm -hmm. the main avenues of Barcelona, and uh, heard some shouting down in the street around nine o'clock in the evening. You know, Sp the Spaniards uh, have different kinds of hours than we do. Yes, I do. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, dinner is much uh, different. I looked out, and it looked to be a street demonstration. Well, being in Barcelona, I assumed it was an independence uh, move uh, by the Catalans. Who mm -hmm. They're trying to secede from Spain, form their own state. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, a demonstration is a demonstration. I wanted to see what it was all about, so I went downstairs. And it turned out it wasn't about that at all. These were people who were marching to protest foreclosures and the, and the power of the banks in Spain. So I marched with them. At 9 o'clock at night? At 9 o'clock at night. So I, I you know, fell into step and got into a conversation. And I sent them my Bank of America video, and I wanted them to know that, that they're not singular, that, that uh, this, this agitation and, and uh, concern about the uh, oligarchy that we all live with now um, 
is uh, uh, the concern is, uh, I don't know if it's planet-wide, worldwide, but it's certainly uh, there are people in most of the, in the, all of the developed countries and many of the undeveloped countries that uh, share this angst, right. this, this, this uh, turmoil and, and distress uh, of, of having our children's heritages destroyed and, and, and robbed from them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether it's uh, dealing with climate change or whether it's dealing with uh, uh, the uh, oligarchical uh, uh, assumption of assets by the banks and the and major corporations, right. whether it's, uh, uh, you know, however, there are, again, rising movements in, in Greece now, which has been totally raped by the uh, Western powers. Um, it looks like they're going to have a, a, a new government which is going to get rid of this austerity movement. And the same thing is true in Spain. Right. In Spain, there's a, 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 a the, the leading uh, um, uh, political party is called Podemos, We Can. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're, uh, um, it looks like the guy who's the, the fountainhead or the, the uh, uh, figurehead of, of Podemos may be the next premier of, of Spain. So. Mm -hmm. Some of these countries, which have been driven to their knees by the uh, the uh, World Bank and uh, the International Monetary Fund and uh, the uh, powerful uh, figures in the uh, 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 Euro world, uh, you know, uh, uh, Merkel, Angela Merkel, and David Cameron, those people, these, these countries which have been driven to, in some cases, to starvation level, are rising up and saying, "No, we're we're tired of this." And, and uh, perhaps that will happen in the United States. I don't have a lot of optimism about that, but perhaps uh, if things get even worse here than they are presently, people will... I, I think, you know, we go back to, to Brownback in Kansas saying he is, I mean, talk about an austerity program, he's stripping it all the way well, down. Absolutely. And what's happening there, and it's the same thing that's happening, you know, we were talking about Oxfam. What's happening there is your Koch brothers are, you know, Koch brothers saying, we're putting money in, we don't want the taxes. We want you. To, you know, we we uh, we we want the, the <laughs> we want the uh, the energy to be this kind of energy, not sun energy. We want not solar energy, and the the rich get richer and the poor fall away. But the poor need to fucking open their mouths. Well, yeah, except that that um, they have no megaphone. Got it. Uh, you know, uh, but they vote. What does or they vote don't. mean? Are you go, you're going to vote for uh, for for uh, Frick or Frack? Who are you going to vote for? Uh, you know, everybody. They're all in the same uh, pocket. They they all have their hand out to the same people. Mm -hmm. uh, no, uh, that's not to say one shouldn't vote. But uh, voting has been. Uh, we're all to some fundamental de degree disenfranchised in this country because the people for whom we are allowed to vote are people who do not have, for the most part, do not have our best interests at heart. Uh, they're not really representatives of the people. They're representatives of moneyed interests. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are a few people who, uh, like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, mm -hmm. uh, uh, to some degree Patrick Lee. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, for the most part, they're, that's, that's it. So who are you going to vote for? You know, if I was in, in uh, Vermont, or I would vote for Bernie Sanders. Right. If I were uh, from Massachusetts, I'd vote for. But uh, Barbara Boxer, she sold out years ago. Yes, uh, she did. Uh, 
Uh, Diane Feinstein says that uh, who's running the uh, who's the ranking member of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee says no, we shouldn't uh, prosecute David Petraeus for spilling the CIA's uh, secrets to his uh, girlfriend because he suffered too much. Meanwhile, uh, the only guy who's doing time for uh, 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 spilling secrets about the CIA is a guy who was a whistleblower on the torture program. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we we can make a, a list of all of the transgressions against our best interests, mm -hmm. but until and unless people join with each other right. and say no more, not, not uh, just take a march, but really say no more, mm -hmm. it ain't going to happen. I, I also believe, you know, going back to this, now this conversation certainly isn't, you know, it's already steered so political and I love it. Um, I believe that the media is also suppressing there is no media that is saying that that is following the the movements to help foment that movement. Absolutely, the, the only the only uh, major major figure I, I think that, that does that is uh, John Oliver. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I'm a big admirer of admirer of uh, uh, John Stewart and Stephen Col uh, Colbert. I think they're they're both terrific. But what they are basically are ironists. They're, they're People who, as you and I have been doing uh, to some degree this morning, uh, people who point out the irony and the contradictions in the uh, in the culture, whereas Oliver actually is sounding a call to arms. Right. Is that what you're doing with the committee? Yeah. Yeah. You betcha. Right. Right. Uh, we we had a, we had a scene once. I remember this is. Uh, we had many many different things. There, there was a. Um, uh, Scene that we did called Sixty Thousand Come Home." Mm -hmm. That was uh, it was based on the headline uh, when um, I guess uh, Johnson, no, no, it was Nixon, Nixon was pulling the troops out of uh, Vietnam. Right. And we got the suggestion from the audience: "Sixty Thousand Come Home." Mm -hmm. So the the scene was um, there were three uh, GIs. Who just got off the plane? Now, what they did during Vietnam, and I think to some degree is true now as well. But in those days, during with the draft, uh, when uh, military people would finish their their service and be de deployed back to the United States, there was no transitional period at all. They would literally get off the plane. They'd still be, you know, uniformed military people, but they'd get off the plane and they were cut loose. Uh, they had to report to base and so on, but there was no uh, trauma uh, uh, concern. It was, and so this the this scene was uh, uh, these three guys had been picked up by one of their parents. These are all actors, right? Of course. Uh, picked up by the parents of one of the guys and and his fiance. And they, they, the scene took place in a motel room, where they're sort of decompressing a little bit. And uh, having a couple of drinks and talking and chatting, and slowly, the guys get into a flashback situation, and they kill the parents and they rape the the the, uh, uh, the, the fiance. The fiance. Uh, uh, you know, it was very funny until it stopped being funny, got very brutal. But it was also something which was true. It was quite factual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I remember uh, after we and people were quite upset by that. I remember afterwards being. Uh, Upbraided by a woman who had been in the audience, saying, "My son was in Vietnam, and he did a lot of terrible things, but he never raped a woman." <laughs> Whoa! I mean, you know, 
that that was uh, but yeah we we were very much to try we we did a scene my favorite scene that we ever did we only did once uh, it wasn't actually a scene i i had developed the long for uh, created developed long form mm -hmm. uh, improvisation with the herald uh, but before that we had done uh, a uh, a Act long piece called the Fear, Guilt, and Impotence Collage. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but and but this was so I, I was very and that was a written piece. No, well, it was written because of repetition. But got it. it got no it. one ever right. sat down. And yes. Put words on paper. But it was yes. Got it. Okay. But it began by uh, by improvisations. Yes, and, and then you created a beat sheet right. after that. Right. Then, right. Okay. Uh, but then we there, there was one one th this one thing which uh, I called the exorcism. And Howard Hessman, uh, uh, I shared in the uh, house with him. Mm -hmm. We were quite close. And he had been sort of dry as an improviser for a few weeks. He was getting concerned that he didn't have, it wasn't coming up with anything. Mm -hmm. He asked me if I would come up with a piece, the idea for a piece for him. So I, uh, uh, that afternoon, I had to drive out to Marin County. I was thinking about his thing. and. and Howard had told me uh, this was the day after Lyndon Johnson gave a State of the Union address, his final State of the Union address, not when he said he wasn't going to run anymore. Right. But in the course of this address, he uh, proposed a federal police uh, uh, agency uh, devoted to stamping out drugs, uh, particularly the scourge of LSD. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Howard was... Uh, uh, Watching that with Gary Goodrow and Mimi Farina, who were both members of the committee at the time. Uh -huh. Mimi's Joan Baez's sister, right? Yes. yes. Well, I, I like to think of Joan as Mimi's sister. But That's it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> and they're both Pauline yeah. sisters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although Mimi's no longer with us, unfortunately. Yes. Uh, at any rate, uh, Howard had told me that they had watched the, the State of the Union message and that when. Uh, um, Johnson proposed that police agency, uh, Gary Goodrow had gotten up to kick in the television. He was so enraged and had to be wrestled away from the TV set. So I was thinking about that. I was thinking about Howard's request for his scenes. And uh, I came in that night and I proposed a scenario which uh, no one wanted to do. And I felt so strongly about it that I said, I've never done this before, but I w if you guys don't do this, I'm out of here. I'm resigning because this is what we should be doing. What we should be about. Mm -hmm. So they agreed to do it. And what uh, what we did was this: uh, we reenacted. I had Peter Bonner standing stage uh, uh, stage downstage right mm -hmm. in a tight spot, uh, spotlight with a uh, uh, cowboy hat, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, he was John, to be Johnson. Uh, Doing this uh, this speech uh, as if he were on TV, and uh, but he wasn't actually uh, saying the, the, the words. The stage manager was reading it off the, from the newspaper transcript over the loudspeaker. Who was the stage manager? Uh, Jim Cram at the time, and um, Peter was gesticulating the way Johnson would, but the voice was disembodied because mm -hmm. it wasn't coming from Peter. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, Howard, uh, Gary, and Mimi were sitting as if they were watching Peter on on, uh, on the television. 
And uh, when he got to the salient part, uh, and Gary got up to kick in the TV set, Howard pulled him away and uh, he turned off the TV. But as soon as he turned off the TV, the voice changed from reading the transcript to what became a mantra, you can't turn me off, I'm you. You can't turn me off, I'm you. You can't turn me off, I'm you. And that went on for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, just as, as a, a, a base note. Uh, while their discussions are going on well, on all, top all of that. kinds of things are going on. Yes. Uh, and Howard came out and uh, broke character, broke the fourth wall. Mm -hmm. uh, Howard was brilliant at uh, relating to an audience mm -hmm. and said, this actually happened. This is what happened last night. Mm -hmm. And we tried to get, uh, I, I actually, I think Howard tried to kick in the TV set and he was wrestled away. That was, uh, he said, and I, I, uh, uh, I really wanted to, to break this TV set, and I wanted to kill this motherfucker. Mm -hmm. I wanted to kill the president. Mm -hmm. said, now, I'm a hippie. I don't go around wanting to kill people. I was really ashamed of myself, but you know what? It felt good. Mm -hmm. It felt good mm -hmm. to hate this man. Mm -hmm. I know you all hate this man. Let's hate him. Let's see if we can't collectively create enough hate that we can kill him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, the rest of the, of the uh, company was on stage in a line, and they began to chant, it's fun to hate, it's fun to hate. Meanwhile, Jim Cran is going, you can't turn me off, I'm you. And uh, Bill Matthews, the pianist, was mm -hmm. playing really uh, horribly atonal dissonance uh, music. And Howard whipped the, was to whip the crowd into a, and people were screaming, "No, don't make me do this!" And people, other people were throwing chairs. It was, it was bedlam. And I was in the back of the house, and I had a um, signal light that I could signal uh, to. Uh, if the light went on, uh, the stage manager and the cast would know that I thought that the scene was over, and so they could they could uh, Wrap it up. find a, a way out. And uh, so when I got when Howard got to the peak, what I, I thought was the peak of uh, the audience, uh, uh, just and they were screaming. It was just horrible. Um, he, uh, I signaled him, and he said, "Okay." He said, "Probably we didn't kill him. Probably we didn't kill him." But it was fun, wasn't it? Uh, meanwhile, you, you can't turn me off. I'm you is going on, and he said. Um, uh, so let's see if we can't love him to death. Because <laughs> we do want this guy to die. So mm -hmm. let's see if we can't kill him with love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, he again whipped the audience into a frenzy. I mean, it was like a bee in, it was the ecstasy. Um, and the, uh, the rest of the, uh, of the uh, cast were, um, their instructions were to. Uh, love one another mm -hmm. in a totally authentic present fashion mm -hmm. that uh, based on their real relationship to each other got it so they um, uh, and they, they you know they could touch each other they could they could smile at each other they could dance whatever and they began to dance and the music became really ecstatic and lovely uh, and again, and that, and it was like on a dime. Howard turned them around, mm -hmm. and to the point where they were, people were, people were, were uh, 
enjoyed dancing in in the in the theater and having a great time, and uh, it, it got higher and higher. I mean, it was truly as high an experience as I've ever had in a um, the, theatrical situation Wait. Uh, until it got to as high as I thought it could go. And I gave the signal again, and the light slammed out. And in the dark, Mimi, with that beautiful, clear voice, screamed out, Vietnam. Well, uh, we never did it again. <clears throat> the, uh, the, the company w was too close to the bone. Right. Uh, but uh, we couldn't get the audience out of the, out of the theater. They stayed there for a couple of hours. You know, and we were getting phone calls for days afterwards from people who had heard about this thing. It was a wonderfully powerful piece. And um, that's what I saw in terms of the kinds of theater that we were doing, what our role was. Right. It was tribal. Yeah. Well, they were tribal times in San Francisco. Right. Right. I, uh, I I, I'm listening to that. I'm thinking that, that I hope that people certainly improvisers have had that experience performing. I've had that experience performing. And I would hope that others would too, of where you get the audience into a frenzy and you realize this is so close to a religious uh, experience. Um, because truly they were being, they were being motivated by the preacher up there. You know, well, they were being, being a shaman, if you will. They were being motivated by Howard as a shaman, yes. but they were also being motivated by their profoundly residual feelings that had not been expressed up to that point. Right, right. And I think that that when we go to see a theater like when we go to see a theater like the committee, and and we feel like these are our like-minded people, and that was what was happening at that place at that time. And when I was in Chicago, it was the, the resurgence, if you will, or re, re, renaissance of, uh, of, of, of small storefront theaters opening up and people really, and Dell being there and guiding people and saying, go, do shows, get out there. What's your voice? Take this and break it and find your own diamond within this this piece of coal that we're, you know, compress it and do what you want to do. But it's a matter of having having the people around there and also having the audience. Well, yeah, Chicago is a remarkable town. In fact, I think that Chicago still has, uh, the last I heard, still has the largest number of resident theaters in the country. Yes. I think it's 250 resident theaters in, in Chicago. Yes. And when, when you were there, we're going to talk about that, but when you were at Second City, I was the artistic director of Second City here, and I was also mm -hmm. in a company in Chicago. Uh, when you were there, who was in the company? Well, I uh, the original company, which was uh, uh, Mina Kolb and Barbara Harris and Alan Arkin and uh, uh, Andy Duncan and uh, Severin Darden and Paul Sam, mm -hmm. uh, were on Broadway. Uh, Paul wanted took them to Broadway, right? So he hired me to to develop a second company to hold down the fort Got while it. they were in. How know, did he get in touch with you? How did he know you? It was uh, my life has been a series of fortunate accidents. I had had a romance with a woman who, I, when the romance was over, she we became we were still good friends. She moved to Chicago and was a waitress at Second City. Mm -hmm. Heard they were looking for somebody. Suggested me to Paul. Paul was came to New York. Paul Sills. We Paul Sills came yes. to New York. We uh, had uh, lunch. He liked me. I have no idea why. Mm -hmm. I had no experience in performing improvisation, wow. and uh, he uh, hired me. 
from what were you doing prior to that? I was a drag well, I was a waiter. I was all, actually at that point I had become. I was working at the Village Voice mm -hmm. uh, in, New York. in New York. I was directing theater in New York and teaching acting. Uh, but is I, your background? You have a, you have a, you have, a, you, have, a, you, have do you have a master's degree in teaching or? No, I, I dropped out of college when I was a sophomore. I was going to be a lawyer. I woke up one morning and realized I couldn't go to an office for the rest of my life and moved to New York uh, with the idea of, uh, or the avowed purpose of being a writer, but actually because I thought I could meet girls easier. Yeah, right. Turned out right. to be right. I was not I a bad move. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I was working at the Village Voice. I was um, uh, the, the uh, jazz critic, the uh, second string uh, theater critic. The makeup man sold ads, wrote ads. It, it was in, in the second year of, of Village Voice, and so it was a small, wonderful uh, uh, newspaper. I remember once, one night, uh, this weird bearded guy came in while I was making up the paper, and I made him get out. And um, the next morning, got called into the publisher's office because I'd kicked Allen Ginsberg out. Of it. <laughs> 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 it was that kind of a, of a right, kind of place, right? Were you living in the village at the time? Pardon? You were living in the village at the time? I was living in the village, mm -hmm. yeah. I've been very fortunate in terms of being often in the right place with the right people at mm -hmm. the right time. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's what I was doing. Uh, I was directing, I, I, uh, and as I say, teaching, acting, mm -hmm. uh, but I was making a living at the Village Voice. Right. And uh, so, so how long were you in Chicago? I was in Chicago for about uh, nine or ten months, uh -huh. uh, and the company that I had there was Dell. Um, Jimmy Anthony Holland, right. Tony Joan Holland. Rivers, uh -huh. stories about her, but you don't want to hear them right no, now. No, no, no. <laughs> Gene Trubnik, um, right. Um, I don't, uh, Avery Schreiber and Dick Shaw came into it. I took a, a company of Avery, Dick, and uh, Linda Siegel into uh, uh, Cleveland for a few weeks mm -hmm. to open a Cleveland committee. Uh, second city. Second city. And right. um, right. uh, again, with, anyways, wonderfully talented people. Right. Uh, a number of whom uh, wound up working at the committee uh, after a while. So you got so the committee started, and I know this date because it's my birthday, April tenth, nineteen sixty three. Uh, I'm fifty nine. But did, tell me the timeline. Like, how did Dell Dell made it out there later? Well, what happened was, yeah, he uh, Dell uh, tried to get me fired. In Second City, because mm -hmm. Dell wanted to be the, the director, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, about the same time, coincident with that, uh, the uh, uh, company in New York, the Broadway company, their run had ended, mm -hmm. and they had moved into a uh, club uh, off of uh, Washington Square called Square East, and Paul uh, wanted to come back to Chicago, which was his home. Right. And so we swapped, and I took over the original company because I wanted to go back to New York, which was my home at the time. It. And so we swapped, and Carl, and, and uh, uh, unfortunately for Dell, Paul became the director, and so Dell never got to be the director at that time. At that time, right? right. At that time. Um, and uh, then, um, but he remained uh, good friends with John. Bre John Brent and Hamilton Camp were also in uh, uh, Bobby Camp at the time. Sure, were also in the company. I mean, my company in Chicago. Uh, Hamilton Camp was also a folk singer who was a friend of my family's. Oh, really? So it's Gibson and Camp and, yeah. and, and those Yeah, great. well, they were wonderful together. In fact, uh, when, uh, before I got the job at the Village Voice, I was a bouncer at the Café Wa, which is a, 
a famous uh, coffee house in New York, and um, I used to, you know, we'd get, I'd finish work at two or three in the morning, and I'd walk the streets just to walk the streets. Yeah. And uh, usually, uh, uh, one of my walking companions was uh, Albert Grossman, mm -hmm. who uh, was the, ultimately the manager of uh, Bob Dylan and the band. And uh, at that point, uh, Albert wanted to put together a uh, uh, folk singing group, uh, and uh, approached Gibson and Camp, and he wanted to put uh, uh, Mary Travers in it. And Gibson and Camp, in their brilliance, said, "No chicks, man." <laughs> So Mary, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary got formed with two other guys, and the Gibson camp broke up. But, but, but at any rate, uh, uh, Hamilton camp changed his name again, didn't he? Uh, Hamid. Yes. Yes. He, he converted to Islam. Yes. And uh, but again, he's uh, he's also no longer with us, which is a yes. huge shame. At any rate, uh, uh, I. Uh, Took over the uh, the New York company, and then got married, and uh, we moved to uh, uh, we we drove out uh, west to introduce ourselves to each other's families. My wife's uh, family uh, at the time, my wife's uh, or my then wife's family uh, lived in Arizona, and mine in L.A. Mm -hmm. And then we took a little honeymoon to go up to San Francisco, just to go to San Francisco. We brought our scrapbooks to show our parents what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, in meeting a couple of people in San Francisco, they said, gee, this sounds like something that uh, we'd like to have in San Francisco. And about uh, three months later, we had raised enough money and capitalized and, uh, and uh, opened the committee in uh, 1963, mm. April 63, April 10th on your birthday. Yes, April 10th. <laughs> and then um, uh, several years later, uh, I think it was probably in the late 60s, probably 68, 69, something like that, uh, Dell had run afoul of everybody in Chicago. He'd burnt every bridge he could possibly burn. And um, sort of in revenge for trying to get me fired, I hired him. <laughs> <laughs> Came out to San Francisco where he you know, rejoined uh, his very close friend, um, uh, John Brent. Right. Um, uh, Camp had that point moved on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then... But at that, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the idea of then uh, long-form improvisation, Dell got inspired by that. Dell brought that back here. Yeah, Dell Del, Del, Del had two truly monumental talents. Mm -hmm. One was as an inspiring teacher, mm -hmm. and the other was as an evangelizer uh, salesperson. Mm -hmm. He was, in my experience, he was not a terribly creative guy in terms of making something up out of whole cloth, but he was sort of like the post World War II Japanese. He would take something and refine it, and uh, and then sell it brilliantly. And so, yes, Dell then, uh, once he left San Francisco, took the uh, the Herald and long form, and uh, presented it to the world in a way which we never had. Right. Right. But there was an incubation period mm -hmm. of all that. Right. Yeah, we were doing the Herald also down here in L.A. Mm -hmm. when we were at, we, we had a, simultaneously theaters in uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I remember once, uh, this was a particularly bizarre evening. Uh, one of the, I, I was besides interested in uh, being interested in long form, 
I was interested in random and simultaneity and randomness. Mm -hmm. And so I had put uh, a couple of television monitors on the top of the uh, set in L.A., uh, tuned to different channels, just so the images would inform the heralds uh, while we were uh, performing them. And one night, uh, uh, I didn't notice it. I was paying more attention to what was going on on stage. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, suddenly the feeds on both uh, television sets switched to the same feed. And then uh, a few minutes later, somebody came into the theater and said uh, that uh, Bobby Kennedy had been shot. What we were watching during the Herald on the TV set was Bobby Kennedy being shot. <laughs> it was interesting times. Great. Let's stop there. Okay. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to ADD Comedy. For Dave Rizowski, I'm Ian Foley. For more information on Dave, you can go to his website at www.davidrizowski.com or follow Dave on Twitter at drizowski.